says, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. Therefore, let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or whether the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours. And you are Christ's and Christ is God's. And Father, we just... Humbly ask again for the help of your Holy Spirit as we open the word of God now as an act of worship that you would prepare us and that by your spirit's ministry, you would speak to each and every one of us the things that we need to hear from this portion of the word of God today. So please bless your word to our hearts now. We ask expectantly together in Jesus name and everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, one of the best ways to avoid making mistakes in our personal life is to make sure that you are informed. In fact, perhaps we have heard statements before where somebody has said something like, it's really important to make sure that you're informed. Make sure that you are informed. Of course, being informed speaks of just having knowledge of a particular subject. And by being informed, you can make, therefore, well-informed decisions And you can decide best, and you can think properly, and you can ultimately act best if you are informed as compared to being uninformed. And look, let me just say, it's important that we be informed citizens, but there's nothing more important that we be informed spiritually. And there are a lot of things that God wants us to be informed about, and I think some of those things are in our passage this morning, things that it's important to be informed about in regards to our spiritual lives. Remember, Paul in the chapter has just been speaking about the church. And again, remember when we say the word church, we're not talking about the physical structure that God's people gather in. Often we hear church and we think of a building. We're talking about God's people, followers of Jesus Christ. And as Paul is talking about the church, he's just used the analogy of the church, the Lord's people, being like a building. He said back in verse 9, you are God's building. And he kind of used that analogy of God's people being like a building. The Bible tells us as well in Peter that we are like living stones, chiseled and shaped and joined together exactly where the Lord wants us to be. He fits us like a living stone in the church to establish this spiritual building. And again, think of a building. A building is something that is to be occupied. It's something that's not built to be vacant. It's something that is built for a person to dwell inside. Well, the church, God's people, is God's building. And it's intended for God's presence to be occupied here on this earth where he might be at work among us. So he continues now with this imagery of the church being a building in verse 16, saying there, look at it, he says, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? So the first thing we see from verse 16 that God wants us to be informed about is that the Lord's people, again, the church, have now become the place on earth where God's presence dwells, 
where God's presence is at work. That word you there in verse 16 is actually in the plural. It's not in the singular. So it might be better translated you all or y'all. That's kind of the idea there of verse 16. It's a plural you that he's using. And remember, the context is Paul is speaking regarding the collective church family as followers of Jesus. He's not making this statement to the individual believer. So that you is intended to be read in the plural sense where do you all not know that you all are the temple of God and the spirit of God dwells with or among you all. Now, important to take note of that. Granted, each believer in Jesus Christ is also spoken of as the temple of the Holy Spirit as well. In fact, in this same very book, when we get to chapter 6, it uses that idea there, how when we are saved, when you accept Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, the Holy Spirit enters inside of you as a part of the conversion experience, and the Holy Spirit dwells in my life. He lives within you. He remains within us, within our body, to build us up spiritually. He becomes the internal spiritual helper, and God's presence by the Spirit dwells within each believer. And so we as well, in a sense, become a temple of the Holy Spirit. Paul is going to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, when we get there, do you not know that your body, your physical body now he's talking about, is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have from God, and you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God, he says, in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So it is true the individual believer is the temple of the Holy Spirit, but in context here in chapter 3, which is important, here he's talking about the entirety of the church family. He's talking about collectively all believers are referred to in this context here as the temple of God that the Spirit of God dwells amongst. In Ephesians 2, it expounds on that very concept. Let me read you the passage from there. It says, Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building, listen, fitted together, that's all of our lives as believers, a building fitted together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. So again, God does not dwell amongst special buildings. He does not dwell in ornate structures. The presence of the Lord is not, in a sense, relegated to a facility. The presence of the Lord, the church, leaves when the last person locks the door and walks out of this facility. Then this is just a building. That's all it is. This same building was once used as a store. There's nothing sacred about the building. It's just a building. God's building, God's place where his presence is at work and manifest is among his people. So the place God uses as his temple is the people of God where his spirit is dwelling. And as we assemble together, God is amongst us. God is with us. His presence is at work. And that is the earthly location, you may say, where God's heart is to dwell is among his people. Now, by way of application, that is why being together as Christians and assembling and gathering, listen, key word today, is essential. That is why it is essential that the church 
gather, that the people of the Lord assemble, because Scripture says it is part of God's will for his people to meet together, that we would assemble together because we become the temple of God, whereby collectively, as we come together as a spiritual temple of the Lord, we offer through our gatherings, through our meetings, through assembling ourselves together, which we are commanded to do, a place for the presence of God to be manifest and work most powerfully among us. Jesus, we're told in Revelation chapter 1, it says he's walking amongst the churches in their midst. Now, when we don't assemble as the church, to a degree, we close off access to the Lord to work in the most powerful and strong way that he intends to because that's God's ideal biblically. That the people of God be together because he dwells among the temple of his people. And I say that because, look, especially in this season we're in, don't ever let anyone tell you that it's not important for the church to gather. Don't ever begin to believe, no matter who's saying what, or start to think that assembling personally with God's people is really not that essential. And that it's not essential to our spiritual lives. It is absolutely essential. In fact, quite honestly, whenever it is legitimately possible, being gathered together with God's people is God's ideal. It is the biblical paradigm that God intends for his spirit to be at work. And so important is it to be informed about this truth that God's people are his temple where his spirit is at work among us in the greatest degree Hebrews 10, God directly addresses that in his word. Listen to what he says there. Hebrews 10 says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. One translation says, not giving up meeting together. Boy, is that fitting not giving up meeting together. And then he says, as is the manner of some, that is some had began to embrace that habit. And it, it wasn't because of other underlying issues. And it doesn't have to be a, a pandemic and government restrictions. Look, it is always to some degree a temptation and a challenge for God's people to stop meeting together. For whatever different reasons and excuses can come around, we have to be very careful. This is a common temptation for many different reasons. So I can be a Christian, but I don't need to be with the church. Look, the, biblically, the Bible says, yes, you can be a Christian without being together with the church, but that's not God's highest ideal spiritually, nor is it healthy or most fruitful spiritually. We are intended to worship together, to assemble together. It is where God's spirit works among us. He says, not giving up meeting together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another. And then he says this, and so much more as you see the day approaching. The day, the day of the Lord. So the Bible in context with saying, don't stop meeting together as God's people says, and all the more as you see the return of Jesus coming. In other words, the closer we get to the return of the Lord, the more committed we really have to become to be together with one another, to encourage and strengthen and build each other up and remember what our lives are about. Because you know why? It's going to get harder and harder and harder and harder and darker and darker. And, and I need to be with people on Sunday. 
I need to be with God's people Wednesday night. I need to be with God's people as often as possible because it takes me about three hours to get really carnal again. It takes me about two, three days before I can totally go off the rails if I'm not with the people of God and experiencing the ministry of God. Maybe others are stronger than me. I don't know. (laughs) But by the grace of God, listen, whenever we can, whenever it is legitimately possible, we do need and want to be together. We, we should. That's God's design. He says, you are the temple of the Lord. His spirit dwells among you. That is, his spirit's dwelling and working most proficiently and most effectively among the church, among God's people collectively gathering. Now, carrying on with this idea of the local church family being God's building like a temple, he then says in light of that verse 17, if anyone defiles the temple of God... God will destroy him for the temple of God. Again, the church is holy, which temple you are. So the second thing we notice here in the verses that God wants us to be informed about is that those who bring ruin against the church will suffer ruin themselves as God severely judges them for that horrible error, that offensive error to God against his church. He establishes again there in verse 17 is verse 16 that the church is the temple of God and he refers to the group of God's people as the church making up the local church as referring to us as he says which is holy. The idea is again set apart sanctified for a divine purpose. God sees his church his people as a holy institution set apart, pure and wholesome. And again, why is it also holy? Well, because the very presence of the Holy Spirit is among us. There are many reasons the church is holy. The presence of the Spirit is at work in our midst. But the point is, is that the church is very special to God. It's extremely special. It's valuable. It's pure. It's precious. And God is occupying the temple of his people, and he is working amongst us and in our midst, building his kingdom. Acts chapter 20 says that it is the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood, blood bought. Again, you and I who are members of the family of God, we make up the household of God. We're God's household and God is with us. And this is God's house amongst us. Again, the people of God. So therefore God wants his presence to be most pure and powerful and at work amongst us as his people And that's why the temple of the church, God's people, again, is so special. He says, which you are. And in light of this, the Holy Spirit, therefore, directs Paul to give a very severe warning. If you didn't notice the severity of it, you see what he says there in verse 17. If anyone defiles, now again, he's talking about the church. If anyone defiles the temple of God, the church, God will destroy him. Now, look. The context there, again, cannot be the church universally, globally, if you would, because Jesus himself, remember, assured us, he said, the gates of hell, that is the most evil activity of all the most demonic forces of hell, won't prevail against my church. So Jesus isn't saying that somebody could destroy the whole church universally some other religion, or that somebody's going to do something to stop the church. Nobody can stop Jesus' church. Jesus said, the gates of hell aren't going to prevail against my church. He's going to build this church. However, the context, again, what did we say it is? Paul's addressing what? A local congregation, the church at Corinth. 
He's talking about the church collectively, a church that's a local church in Corinth where he's writing in context. Now, in that sense, this warning does make sense because sadly, in the setting of a local church, people can engage in harmful activities and do things that can ruin a local church, that can defile a local church, that can even bring the end to a local church. That's the concept here. And he says, the warning, if anyone defiles the temple of God, that word defile in the Greek, you look it up, it, it means to mar, to ruin, or to bring injury. That if, if anyone does something or repeatedly does things that mars or pollutes God's people, if anyone becomes guilty of behaving in a manner where they injure or cause harm to God's church, to God's people, if anyone or any group causes ruinous damage among the church or worse, brings the actual ruin or end of a local church, he says there, look at it, God will destroy him. Wow. Let that sink in for a minute. That's strong. That is strong language there. Shows you how special God's church is to him because God's people are his temple. He says God will destroy him. That same word, destroy, that's used is the same term that's used above. In my translation, it's rendered defile. Then it's translated destroy in the second sentence. But it's actually the same term that's used both times. So the, the language there, if anyone defiles God's church, then he says, then if they mar God's church, then God is going to mar their life. If they injure God's church, then he says, then God is going to bring tremendous injury and suffering into their life. If they do something to ruin God's church, then God's going to ruin them personally. That's strong language there. But again, I can completely associate with that reality because the Bible's referred to the church as the bride of Christ. Listen, I may not be packing guns, but if you mess with my bride, I'm going to put a hurting on you. Because that's my bride. I'm a father of three adult children now, but look, you come into my home or you try and harm one of my children, I'm going to mar you. I'm going to injure you the best possible that I can because those are my kids. Well, look, God's a perfect father, and Jesus is the greatest husband of all. So we can understand the severity of this, having the strength that it does. Now, how can people become guilty of doing such things, marring the church, defiling the church, ruining the church? Well, to me, obvious things, you know, spreading false doctrine, polluting God's people spiritually by, you know, causing them to, to air off track spiritually or eternally, even worse. Doing sinful things that pollute the body of Christ because you're bringing sin into the church somehow. Behaving in some way that's, you know, just painfully injuring or tearing people's lives apart. Being guilty of doing something where you rip to shreds the precious people of God. Where you bring harm and stumbling and heartache or, or opposing or restricting the church in some way that just causes real ruin or damaging. You know, may this severe warning serve its purpose in all of our lives. I mean, I read a warning like that in the Bible and I realize God wants me to be informed. I'm informed. Thank you, Lord. I am informed right there. That, that's pretty strong. 
I'll take that for what it is that God says, those who bring ruin to my church, I will bring ruin to them in corresponding severity. Well, thirdly, we see that God wants us also to be informed that it's possible to be self-deceived. Look what he goes on to say, verse 18. Let no one deceive himself. He wants me to be informed and you to know that it is possible to be self-deceived. And quite frankly, I think the greatest form of deception is probably not being misguided by other people, especially for the believer. Think about it. I have the Holy Spirit dwelling within me. He's called the spirit of truth. So if I listen to the Holy Spirit, I'm going to do a pretty good job, hopefully staying away from error because the spirit of truth lives within me. I have a copy of the word of God, the truth of scripture that I can align and check. I can fact check everything with the Bible. That's a pretty good safeguard so I don't get deceived and misguided. And then I have you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, because we're meeting. Hallelujah. We're assembling. And so if one of us starts to get a little bit goofy, when because we're together, we can, hey, bro, what are you doing? I mean, just, and, and we can keep each other accountable and pray for one another. So there's a lot of safeguards if, indeed, we stay connected to the Lord's people, if we stay listening to the Holy Spirit, if we allow our lives to be guided by the Word of God, it's going to be difficult for somebody to misguide us. However, apart from those essential things, any person can start to believe lies that stem from their own sinful nature. You disconnect from those helps, lying thoughts and wrong feelings and distorted perspectives that arise from our own self-serving desires within us to do what is selfish can deceive us very quickly in our lives. Jeremiah 17:9 says it this way, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it? That is, who can even know the deceptive power of their own human heart? That's the condition of our natural heart. So apart from the Lord, we all have the natural capacity to seriously err personally, to get way off track, to become self-deceived. That's why he says here, let no one deceive himself. You know, it's possible to deceive ourselves into thinking something is okay that's not okay. It's possible to deceive yourself in thinking that something is right or acceptable that's not right, and it's not acceptable. But yet sometimes we can sadly deceive ourselves where we're utterly wrong, and our sinful nature can lead us into self-destructing patterns, and God wants me and you to be aware of this reality. Beware of becoming self-deceived. Keep Guard yourself. It's a possibility. God says, be informed be conscious of this weakness that you can not only err, Tony, but worse, you can not only just err, you perhaps may not even recognize how wrong you are sometimes, Tony. You may not even see that you're living and believing a complete lie, that you're completely off track and you're fooling yourself. Look, is it possible? Could you be right now deceiving yourself in light of something in your life? I don't think it's ever a bad thing to humbly pray periodically, God, if I've been deceiving myself, listening to lying thoughts or my emotions, and, and, and God, if, if I'm off track and I'm deceiving myself that something is okay that's not okay, then please show me, Lord. If, if I'm deceiving myself thinking that this behavior is acceptable that I'm doing privately that I don't tell anybody else about, but, and I'm thinking, well, I can justify it. It's acceptable. Well, may not be acceptable. 
And you could be deceiving yourself and, and heading down a path that's not healthy. It's a good thing to realize, he says, let no one deceive himself. And we see that God wants us to be informed. It seems to me that wisdom from this world and the world's thoughts can actually become the barrier, which maybe is one of the greatest ways we can be self-deceived. Because look what he goes on to say. He says, don't deceive yourself. And then perhaps this is one of the greatest ways it can happen. If anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise that they are futile. So again, appears one of the ways we can all deceive ourselves is maybe relying a little bit too much on reasoning and ideals and the wisdom of this present age that we live in. The idea is worldly wisdom, ideals that come from a world system that's broken that many don't serve God in. Indeed, there are, look, there's a lot of smart people out there, uh, people who have great intellects, brilliant individuals. There are many even who have wisdom out there in the world and in this present age. In Corinth, that was the case particularly in their community. They prided themselves in the city of Corinth for having great thinkers, famous philosophers, and those who were brilliant minds, highly esteemed, who promoted certain ways of life and patterns of how to think and ideals about morality and values and so forth, these great philosophers. But see, the problem is all that wisdom is just human wisdom. It's human wisdom that stems from this current age. That's why he says, if anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. See, we have to remember the, the wisdom of that age or this age is flawed because man in his humanity, in our natural condition, we're sinful. So guess what that means? We are operating or functioning, I guess you may say, with a broken operating system. Yeah, we're functioning, but every one of us up here and even in here, we have a broken operating system. And so when someone is living apart from God, they may have great thinking ability. They may have their natural reasoning, but there's always limits and barriers to that because we're broken as human beings. So the wisdom of this world and the wisdom of this age isn't ultimately the best thing to rely on Notice he says, verse 19, he says, the wisdom of this world, it's like foolishness with God. That is, when you compare the wisdom of mankind and the wisdom of God in comparison, he said, when you line the two up, it's kind of like, if I could illustrate, he said, it's kind of like the wisdom of this world, the best wisdom of mankind, it's like peewee t-ball. And then God's wisdom is like the major leagues, man. I mean, it's like the two don't even compare, it's just... One isn't even close to the other. God, who knows all, has much greater wisdom. And that's why he quotes here in verse 19 and 20 from Job 5 and Psalm 94 to reinforce this, to show that when man is trying to be crafty or sneaky, thinking they can outsmart God, that God catches them in that every time. You think you're smarter than me? Come on. He says he catches the, the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise. God says, I, I know the thoughts of the wisest of men. He says, and from my perspective, they're futile. They're vain. Now, that is the reason why he instructs, if anybody appears to be wise in this day and age, he says, it would be better for them to become a fool 
in the age that they're in, then they could actually become wise spiritually to have God's superior wisdom. That's why he says there in verse 18, if anyone among you seems to be wise in this age, here's my suggestion, God says, it'd be better to become a fool to everybody in this current age, be looked at as a fool, so that you could truly become wise from God's perspective. Again, this reminds us that God's wisdom is not only far superior, but the problem a lot of times is that we are so inclined to want to embrace the thinking patterns of the world around us and all the voices and talking heads, but ultimately adopting the ways of this world can become a true barrier to accepting and following God's wisdom because God's wisdom is very different than the way that the world thinks and operates. And it's almost necessary that you and I have to be willing to give up having the acceptance of people in the world and be looked at as an utter fool sometimes, right? They look at your life, you try and follow the word of God, live according to God's wisdom, and people are going to view you as a fool, as a fool. I just read in my personal devotional time this morning, he who wins souls is wise. Well, the world will never embrace that mentality. God's saying true wisdom, invest in people. Seek to bring people eternal change and help people spirit. God says, that's, that's a wise way to live. He who wins souls is wise. The world would say, look, if you want to be wise, you got to do this and excel and make sure you set yourself up and be ready for retirement. The world's idea of wouldn't be invest in people. The world's wisdom conventionally is invest in yourself. Invest in yourself. Do everything to invest in yourself, right? That's the world's wisdom. If you say, look, I'm willing to forego investing in myself. I'll take a lesser life so that I can invest more in people. The world will go, you're a fool. But God says, hey, you become a fool. That's how you finally start to get true wisdom. Because God's wisdom is much different. We have to be careful. We don't let the ideas of this world interfere. And they can become a barrier to us truly having God's wisdom. So he says, don't let yourself be deceived. It's okay. He says, let people think you're a fool. That way you can truly become wise from God's perspective. Next, we take note of going on to verse 21, that God wants us to be informed that he has supplied things to us in order to help and serve us spiritually. Let me say that again. God wants us to be informed that he has supplied all things to us in order to help and serve us spiritually. Look what he says in these last few verses. First, he says, therefore, let no one boast in men. Again, he comes back to this idea. Don't idolize men. Don't, don't, Overesteem any man because even the greatest of men are just men at best. And men are just tools on this earth that God uses for his purposes. But you notice he says, verse 21, going on, therefore, he says, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death, things present or things to come, he says a second time, all are yours. Two times the Holy Spirit declares this statement, all things are yours. Paul's saying all things belong to you as God's child to help you in your spiritual life. God has set before you and made available things to serve you and I spiritually because he wants to assist us. And he references some of the things that God has given to us to help us spiritually. He references there in verse 22, Paul, Apollos, and Cephas. Paul, Apollos, and Cephas, what were they? Well, they were ministers and Bible teachers. They were spiritual mentors. 
And no doubt here, Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, with great wisdom from God, says, look, God hasn't supplied just one Bible teacher to help you spiritually. There's lots of Bible teachers that are good, sound Bible teachers that can help and assist you in your spiritual life. You don't have to pick Paul or Apollos. There are different people who have different styles. Each one has unique gifts. There are numerous people that can help and assist us in our spiritual life. So he's saying, take advantage of all of them. All are yours. He says, take advantage and take the benefit of what Paul's teaching gives and Cephas's teaching gives and Apollos's teaching gives to help shape your life. He says, also what belong to you, he says, is the things of this world. Again, that's interesting. The idea is we don't have to think everything in this present world is so defiled and so evil that somehow we have to completely disconnect from this world. Instead, he says, no, the world is yours. We should utilize the world in proper stewardship. That's all. We don't abuse or become distracted by the world. We don't let the world defile us but we find ways to do what? To redeem the world. You find ways to utilize the world in a redemptive way and you use the world as your stage for carrying out the will of God. The world is ours. He goes on to say as well, not only the world, but he says, notice what also is ours as believer is life or death. Life and death belong to the child of God. They belong to us to help us. Remember what Paul said to the Philippians? He said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So life belongs to us spiritually. Life provides us an opportunity to live for Jesus. Our current life gives us an opportunity to do something fulfilling and meaningful, which is to serve the Lord rather than just serving ourselves, which is what most other people on the planet do when they don't know God. He even says, as much as we may not like to hear it, it's also been given to us the experience of death. Because what is death for the believer? Well, it's the finish line. It's the thing that we run our best towards knowing that there is a finish line. And when we cross the finish line of death, it ushers us into the eternal dimension. Because Paul said to be with Christ, which is what happens after we die, is far better. That's why you could say to die is gain. So see, for the believer, death belongs to us. It doesn't terrify us. It belongs to us. Because when I die, I gain even more. It gets far better. For the believer, death is the encouragement that after earthly struggles come to an end, there's a better experience as I enter into the presence of the Lord. He also says as well in verse 22, not only life and death, but even things present belong to us. That is our current circumstances. Whatever's going on in your life right now personally can be used by God to help you spiritually if you recognize and respond to it properly. What's going on in your life right now presently? Look, that can be an instrumental thing that God uses to help you in your spiritual life. For some of you, what's going on in your life presently may be the very thing that drove you to come to a church and to be with God's people. And maybe it was the things presently that were happening in your life that caused you to begin to search and to say, you know, maybe I need God in my life. Sometimes the things that are going on presently in our life are the things that drive us back closer to the Lord or that reawaken us with a spiritual passion because the hardship and the difficulty, it makes our heart tender again. And we realize how much we need the Lord. Our present situation is given to us 
not to ruin us, but actually to redeem something good that God wants to do in our life. So what's happening in your life presently, God wants to use it for his purposes. And then he concludes by saying there as well, not only things present, but even things to come belong to us and to our spiritual benefit. That is, whatever happens in you and I's future, it's really not random. The events that are going to happen, the situations that will unfold, we don't have to live in fear and terror of a what if and what if. No, he says the future, the things to come, that belongs to your spiritual life as well. Because God is going to allow what he allows in his decisions, and he'll utilize that for his best purpose in your life out of his love for you and your spiritual development. So Paul says here in these verses, everything's yours, so let everything serve God's purposes in your life. Everything. Life, death, what's going on presently, what's going to come. He says, let it all, let it all facilitate deeper spiritual development in your life. And then lastly, he shows us in verse 23 that we'd be informed that we also belong to Christ relationally and eternally. So he says, these things belong to you, all are yours. He says, and then you are Christ's and Christ is God's. So not only do things belong to us, but he says, we belong to him. We belong to Christ. We belong to him. The idea seems to be even as the father and son are united and live together as one, and even as Jesus lives in a role submission, submitting to his father relationally, he says, we, the church, are Christ. The idea is we belong to Christ in the same way that Jesus has a connection to his father. Again, Romans 7 speaks of how we've been married to Jesus as a wife to a husband, that, that we're belonging to Jesus. Our relational union makes us belong to him spiritually for all eternity that we shall be with him. Now, I don't know about you again, as far as something to be informed about my belonging to Christ. What a wonderful concept to know that you belong to the Lord, that you belong to him and that he wants you to belong to him. Because oftentimes people struggle in this life searching for acceptance. They want to belong. You know why a lot of young people in this generation get into trouble, get into gangs, get into wrong groups because they're searching for belonging. They want to belong to something. They want to belong to something in a way that's deeper than what they're experiencing. Well, listen, if you enter into a relationship with Jesus, you have a sense of belonging. Everybody else in your life may reject you. They may turn you away. You may feel like, I don't belong to anything. I don't belong. Listen, you belong to Jesus. You belong to Jesus. That's fantastic. Because that determines your eternal destiny. You know what it does? To know that you belong to Jesus helps, it does for me anyway, it helps you mentally up here because, you know, look, I know where I belong. I belong to the Lord, and one day I belong with the Lord. That's why Jesus said in John 14, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God and believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions, and if it were not so, I would have told you. I go prepare a place for you because you belong to him. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Boy, let being informed of that strengthen you through this week. Let's stand together. Let's pray.